we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Power Women podcast for your career and your life, no matter what business you're in. Welcome to April, welcome to spring and a new episode of the Northern Power Women podcast. It's episode 22. We're only as strong as our weakest link. I'm Sam Walker and this month we hung out in Leeds discussing senior leadership roles for women, the ghettoising or not of business awards and life changing books. Do you know what? You can do anything. You can be in a weird environment, it can be really unfamiliar, it can be run by structures that aren't what you expect and don't like, and you can still rock it. In the big interview, you'll get to hear from the first ever female chair of the Scout Association, Anne Lim, educator, trailblazer, and butcher's daughter from Moss Side. Always remember that you know you're only really as as strong as the weakest link in your your chain and actually if you ever leave anybody behind the the chain breaks so i would always say look to the weakest and uh, and pull them up and and it, and if you do that you yourself will be the stronger for it and in ask the hive if you want to change your career direction how best to repackage your skill set all the things you've done within that business, how you've dealt with people, how you've dealt with really, really boring paperwork, all that you can completely do in any job in any industry. But first, I really hope you managed to join us for the superb evening that was the fourth Northern Power Women Awards, a night of commemoration and celebration, headed up, of course, by the founder of Northern Power Women, Simone Roche. Well, do you know what? It has been a, a magnificent march with a month culminating in the fourth Northern Power Women Awards sponsored by Manchester Airports Group in front of a record-breaking engaged audience of 820 hosted by our very own Sam Walker, who was totally awesome despite a wardrobe malfunction. It happens to the best of folk. You won't be surprised to hear that we trended number one in the UK, as we heard from Trisha Williams from Manchester Airport, Metro Mayor Andy Burnham and Baroness Helen Newlove. We celebrated 10 winners, three commended, and we introduced our new 2019 Future List and Power List. I have to say, it was a jam-packed stage right at the end, and we love working with MSP Global, who put everyone's name in lights, ACG, who amplified the conversations, and Burnley College, who helped us launch our We Can campaign, which we urge, urge, urge you to get involved in. Please, hashtag we can and share what you are going to commit to. Not what you're going to pledge to, might do down the road, but what you're going to commit to doing to accelerate gender equality from the North. And we're sharing it across all of our social media platforms. So thank you in advance for We Canning. March is International Women's Day what really goes into a month now. So we were part of the Women in Leeds digital launch event, which happens in May. We hosted an Unleashing Your Superheroes webinar with Edit Development. We had more International Women's Day extravaganza with panel events at KPMG with Michael Page. We also attended the Rose Review launch. And I loved, loved, loved comparing the launch of Rise, which is running for the rest of the year in Liverpool, Liverpool celebrating cultural achievements of women um, across the city just taking a breath um we, we continued on with our power circles hosting them uh, with kpmg in manchester leeds and a brand new outing in liverpool too again about bringing these influential voices together to make change in the north and just to finish the month i was delighted to help launch the unity collective which is a new group at liverpool football club again working across disability gender uh, ethnicity and race to really accelerate and make them an employer of choice so love working with them and 
And I think I finished the month opening the Stock Exchange uh, down in that there London as part of being on the board of the Gender Network's 10th anniversary. So I think maybe I'll take a lie down in April, but congratulations to everyone who was celebrated at the Northern Power Winner Awards. Thank you to all our sponsors and category winners. And I really hope Sam can go off and get a new frock now. Thank you. See you April. Thank you so much uh, to Simone for reminding me of that awful moment in my life where the zip on your dress breaks four minutes before you stand up on stage in front of 800 people. But we got through it together, right? No one noticed a thing. It was all okay. I'll get over it at some point. Now, let's get on to this month's discussion. Now, for episode 22, our brilliant panel of three got together at Sky Betting and Gaming in Leeds. And as usual, we were in front of a live studio audience. Well, hello. Here we are again. Another fantastic afternoon here in the north. Today we are in Leeds. And thank you to Sky Betting and Gaming for being our host this afternoon for the recording of the panel for episode 22 of the Northern Power Women podcast. Um, If you haven't heard many of these podcasts go back peruse through our back catalogue uh, we've had so many conversations all across the north with so many brilliant people and today thank you to our three panelists who join us uh, yasmin actor she's the early careers recruitment manager here at sky betting and gaming also if, if you're thinking i know that name that's because she is on the northern power women future list of course congratulations for that at sky betting and gaming in Leeds, she heads up and has developed the early careers proposition ensuring the company have a unique offering for early talent. Nice to see you, Yasmin. Thank you very much indeed. Big hello to Ed Fulis as well, who's the CTO for the Data Shed. It's both a data product development house and a data consultancy. Uh, Ed's founded the Data Shed with his business partner, Anna Sutton, six years ago. Their business grows over 100% year on year. Fantastic stuff. And last but absolutely not least, Nicola Hallworth-Rudd, who's regional director for Michael Page. What did Michael Page do? Michael Page, recruitment. Recruitment. It's Michael Page International in Yorkshire. Three other passions in life. Coaching cricket. Ooh. Giving the women in her life the confidence to stand out and her sons. Sometimes not, it says here. Any parents will know that feeling very well indeed. Thank you so much for our wonderful panel. Okay, for question number one then this afternoon, the National Business Awards have just released some research which reveals the average UK business now has a senior leadership team that 41% female. So that's the latest research. What I'll ask the panel this afternoon, is this reflected in your centre, or in your sector? Are women more visible in senior roles, essentially, I suppose, a year on from the gender pay report? I'm going to start with you, Nicola. So having done a bit of research into this, knowing that I was coming here today and speaking to women in recruitment group, I don't think 41% is that representative. I think we're a bit less than that in our sector. And we've not really seen a noticeable move in the last 12 months. I think the main problems are it's a sales environment. We're hugely reliant on our networks. If you take time out to run a family, then you're coming back to new networks. There's also a bit of an old boys network in there. And I think when you work in those male environments, slowly over time, your confidence gets knocked somewhat. Mm. It may stop you going for those senior roles that are uncomfortable anyway. But at Michael Page, um, we launched a Women at Page programme in 2012, which was amazing, trying to focus on getting that split right. Uh, it focused on returners, it focused on confidence, skills, opportunity, and we managed to take um, our percentage of uh, managers from 41% to 49% this year, yeah. and I meant to get our directors from 25%, amazingly, to 42%. Um, there's still loads more we need to do. There's still not enough senior females, but you can you can make a huge difference. It, it seems so, but with a concerted effort. This isn't going yeah. to happen as if by magic. Exactly right. You can talk about it, but you've actually got to do it. You've mm. actually got to make those changes. You've got to empower the women to make those changes, but you've got to influence the people in charge to accommodate them. Ed, you know, working in tech as you do, I know my husband works in a similar field of you. He works in data science, and he recently went on some big new recruitment drive for his company, which is an international company. There was a big get-together. There was 100 new recruits there. Two were women. Just two were women. And he said there's an issue with even getting women in at the start, let alone seeing them proceed and watching them proceed through the ranks. 
well, it's tech. Unfortunately, that's the case. It's been back to the old boys' network. Historically, tech is mm. blokes. Um, it's looking for us. Anna and I are fifty percent equal shareholders. That's you know, we. It's, that's very easy to do when there's only two of you. Um, we are currently recruiting as well, looking for 10, 15 new people, wow. and we're seeing exactly the same thing. Um, if I put a role out, I'll probably get a nice cookie-cutter, middle-class, white, mid-30s male, like me, mm. um, and maybe one or two females, but that's usually it. There are very, very few coming through. Um, we're actually finding in more junior roles. We're getting many more. Mm. So back to the point about women in leadership... I think that's going to take quite a lot of time because you can't just pop those into that position of leadership. Yeah. You need to make sure you've got the structures and mentors and coaching around them to get them to that position, but equally exactly the same as you'd do with any junior males coming through. So that's interesting that you not only talked about gender there, but you talked about race and you talked about class. Mm-hmm. And, and we've talked before, actually, on the podcast, haven't we, about tech having a bit of an, a, a class issue as well and that there weren't many working-class people coming into tech. Why, why do you think that is? Um, well, I think for us that's slightly different. We don't prescribe having a degree. Mm-hmm. We don't think it's necessary. I mean, um, I don't use my degree very much anymore in my, my, my role. Um, and we've got several people coming through that have not been through mm-hmm. even sort of A-levels. So actually there is an opportunity there to pick it up and learn. It's actually quite vocational in many respects. Well, b- better route in, actually, via non- non-university channels of tech for a lot of the time. Can be, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You learn the right way of doing things as opposed to being indoctrinated into the <laughs> you must look like this and wear yeah. Converse and jeans. He's wearing Converse and jeans, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that the problem still exists and it will, for me, it will exist for a lot longer yeah. because we've got these old boys who are... Um, not going to die off anytime soon so we've got two options we can either try and influence them change their you know change their way of viewing things so actually these things can start changing at the top and all the way through or we watch it progress and we try and do everything we can to make sure that when they go away we've got people ready to take over who are a bit more open-minded we don't want anyone to die. I think we just uh, make that point. I'm going to come to the lady in the audience in just a moment because I just want to get... Um, I love the fact someone's keen for me to lunge so early on in the day. Uh, Yasmin, you, know, you deal specifically with new recruits and with young recruits. What are you seeing here at, um, at Sky Betting and Gaming? Um, I think we've made a lot of concerted effort over the past three years since running the graduate programmes. Um, I think initially betting and gaming as a whole... Um, it can be a very male-dominated oh. industry, and I think we've made quite a conscious effort, not just with women in leadership, but some of our younger females as we go out to universities to actually give them a platform to showcase themselves in the right places. And I think when you're going out and speaking to young women and men and trying to encourage them to come into an environment, they need to be able to see that it is all-inclusive. Yeah. And I think what we've done as a business when we've kind of thought, actually, what, why aren't you know why aren't we getting women in leadership? Why aren't we getting women in tech? You know what? what can we do to make a change and I think it's kind of been honest to say right how do we change these recruitment campaigns to make them more reflective of the people that we have here so in the first year that we started the graduate program and as is and probably always will be the sky betting and gaming where it was all a bit rush rush let's get to market and see what we get being completely honest and the demographic that we got in terms of offers um, and you know ratio um, was very reflective of the demographic we had here at the time and yeah. you know in terms of 80 20 split 80 percent males and 20 percent females um, and we were like, well, what what can we do to improve that? And when we sat down with the leadership team for the sort of the third year intake, they were like, right, well, we want 50-50. And me trying to be realistic with the leadership team as, as it was at the time, you know, they, they could be quite um, passionate when they think things can be done a certain way. I'd just explain that, you know, it's not an overnight thing. As, as you were saying, Nicola, there's still a lot of work that we have to do. Um, but by a few small tweets, you know, being more face front at the university, showcasing the right people at the right times, um, showing that talent across the board, I think really helped us. And again, changing the recruitment campaigns, the video that we went out with, the marketing material that we used. And actually, when we came to offers in the third year of the graduate campaign, it's actually 63% female. So absolutely wow, smashed okay. it for, for the leadership team, which Amazing. was great. And it's something that I'm particularly proud of, but it's not something that we can kind of rest on our laurels with. We need to keep doing stuff like this and going out and speaking to people and saying, you know, you you can do this. You can, you can do anything that you want. And I think going back to your point, Ed, about actually giving access to people from all kinds of, you know, social mobility and paths, um, when we recruit our 
early talent and we don't you know we don't specify by degree discipline it's about attitude isn't it not aptitude and you can teach people anything if if they've got those core values yeah. that's what I think yeah. anyway again we go back to if you keep advertising in the same way you're going to get the same results yeah. you need to you need to think differently right I'm doing my first lunge of the podcast yes fabulous audience member uh, hello, I'm Jem Henderson. I'm the Entrepreneur Engagement Manager for Tech Nation. And actually, I, one of my massive passions is about working class voices in tech. Uh, I was homeless when I was 16 years old. And obviously, that was a big struggle to kind of get over. I was signed off sick with mental health problems. But I think one of the problems that we see is these things are fabulous. And, you know, Northern Power Women, we're putting women front and centre. How how can we do the same thing for working class people? Who, who are our working class icons in tech and, and in other sectors? That's a good point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revert to you, Ed. Uh, I suppose it's, as with all these things, trying to target the initial channel you can go down to find those individuals because it'd be very difficult for um, me to walk into, you know, I'm, you know, middle class as it comes pretty much. You know, I am the cookie cutter IT person, basically. Um, but for me to walk into a, middle, uh, to a working class environment, be able to communicate effectively to encourage people to go through it, it'd be a very difficult thing for me to do. Um, we find that lots of ex-forces people who might have come, you know, gone to the forces because they didn't have, you know, didn't maybe want to go to university and all that, lots of those can come to us. We've got a few of those ex-forces people that um, can go out and share with their sort of um, wider circles. Um, the major challenges, though, I think, Education plays such a big part in that as soon as you lose that constant contact through GCSE and A-level, trying to get a coherent message across to people is very, very difficult. So um, I can't imagine that many um, working class people would hear about you know, our latest data meetup, but it's actually it'd be a great place to come and learn, just a start of a yeah, 10, here yeah. you go, this is what we do. And it's, I, I genuinely don't know the answer to that one. I know that we've had some great success more by luck more than by active planning. Um, so I'd be interested to hear what everyone else is. Thanks. Let, let me just run... Uh, Nicola, you wanted to say something else first, yeah. Yeah, I think there are a number of charities and academic institutions that could probably really help that don't focus on the so-called elite. If you look at places like Leeds City College... Um, if you look at some of the charities for the, for the homeless, so to speak, then I think you can probably focus on trying to um, get hold of them, trying to educate what you're looking for, but you probably need to then for change what you look at when you're recruiting and how you support them once you have recruited them, because I guess the needs might be somewhat different. And just a final word from you, Yasmin. Um, I think I kind of toy with this question quite a lot and I think does it go back to something as simple as how we're educating children at school and the curriculum and what we can do to give accessibility to everybody because I think the problem is with us you know talking about the skills gap and saying how prevalent it is and how we're really struggling to get the right people are we teaching kids the right things at school I, I don't personally think that we are and I think it goes down to something as simple as saying right this is you know this is what you can study. I think there's still a lot of element of vocational yeah. uh, vocational roles, I guess, um, and that being the correct thing to do. But I think we have to be really realistic about where business is going and where the roles are going to be. And, you know, they're all in digital and tech. So how, how can we, I guess, complain about the skills gap if the education isn't right? And it's yeah. something we've been discussing quite frequently, I guess, as part of the Leeds Digital Board, you know, what, what do we need to do to give accessibility to more people and create opportunities for more people? But it's, I think it's the curriculum that probably needs to change first to make sure that we're giving that chance to everybody at first and, you know, giving them the opportunity to choose the right routes for themselves and that way educating the parents at the same time. Because if the parents don't know, then children aren't going to know either. Yeah. And we're not all in that privileged position yeah. to have parents that, you know, are, I guess, you know, digitally literate. I mean, I know, you know, my my mum is um, not great on her iPhone. I hope she doesn't listen to this. I'm really sorry. Um, but I think, you know, everybody's got different levels and we have to, we have to address that. I think there's a, a multitude of things that we should be doing on, on that basis. Well, it goes back to you can't be what you can't see. And I think we say that pretty much every month here. And actually, if you listen back to an earlier episode, there is a whole last a hive section about um, how to target young working class people for tech recruitment I think how long ago I can't think what episode it was sorry but if you look back through on say iTunes there will be a list on there and there was a whole big discussion about it it was really interesting yes one more lunge hi just a follow-on question about um, the value of work experience in context of this discussion and what the panel were doing to encourage that those opportunities okay Yasmin 
So I think something that we've created over the last couple of years, as well as the graduate programmes, um, is we've decided to do one year's what we call internships, but actually they're university placements, so they give accessibility to people who are at university who want to actually come in and learn a bit of a trade. But how we've done it is to address the digital skills gap by saying, well, actually, we can't complain that there's a skills gap if we're not willing to give opportunities to people because our hope from that is is that they'll do a year, get some great experience here because I think people appreciate you know, how valuable it actually is to get that they'll go back to university sometimes they don't want to go back um, but we encourage them to do so and then we hope that they come back to us at the end of their degrees and that kind of plants I guess the seed if that's first years second years third years we're making sure that everybody's got access to that so it's something that is very very small for now might be a bit of a drop in the ocean but we're doing it and I think it will get bigger over the course of time okay Thank you all very much. If you want to continue the conversation, we see these panels as very much the start of a conversation for you to then talk about in your own networks. Do always get in touch. At North Power Women is where you can find us on Twitter. Of course, you can email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Perhaps you want to hear some follow-up questions uh, next month on the panel. But our second question uh, this afternoon is that Leeds is being mooted as the new location for the new British Library North. I just want to know, and this can be... It's really open to you, this question, but what is the most valuable book you have read and why? And I'm excited to hear what you're going to say. Ed, let me start with you. Oh, good, me first. Um, <laughs> so I read for primarily escapism. I don't... I know, sorry. Is, am I saying your stuff? <laughs> um, so I, I, I tend to uh, read sci-fi and fantasy books, um, but occasionally I'll get a book that has you know, real stuff in there that I have to try and address. Um, one I've read recently, um, which sort of is a, it feels like it goes a little bit against the, you know, the, the power women's side of things, is a book called Extreme Ownership, written by two Navy SEALs. It's probably the blokiest blokey book you can imagine reading. <laughs> Lots of bang. Does it growl at you as you open it? <laughs> yeah, just yes, salutes you. Um, but as I was reading through it, I, th I think the key... The reason I enjoyed it, because it's not my normal sort of book, was more that um, some of the key messages in there, the one that Anna and I really take away, is that it's very easy to look around and blame people when a problem seems to exist, mm. and you know it exists, and it impacts you. If it impacts you, it's your problem to resolve, it's your response to resolve. So in the same way as I'm sat here today, Anna is very much in part of the you know, women in tech sort of side of things because we recognise it's our problem to fix. Mm. We're in here, we're in positions of leadership, so it's our job to go away and do it. Um, there's other stuff in there about how to handle a gun. That's probably not too relevant for <laughs> right now. Well, hopefully not, but the mm. way, who knows, in the future. Uh, <laughs> Yasmin, you're the most valuable book you've read and why? Um, first of all, I think it's important to start with saying I think that could be potentially really fantastic news for the region, especially considering the announcement we've just had with Channel 4. And it's a really hard question because I've been reading a lot since I was really, really little. And I think there's hundreds of books that I could pick out. But um, I was going to say I see reading as a form of escapism. So thanks, Ed, for stealing my line. But fine. <laughs> but I think, but do you know what? I think most people probably do. When you've got such a busy lifestyle, it's just, it's so nice just to take a bit of a break and, and just relax. So um, obviously when I get time these days, um, I don't know if you've heard of an author called Philippa Gregory. She writes a lot about... Um, the Tudor court and I think what history has prevailed and probably tried to sort of showcase is that actually the men in those courts were the ones that were directing everything that was going on but when you read those books it gives you a little bit of a different insight so um the other billing girl is kind of like my bit of um yeah so you know when you have like a comfort blanket that's my comfort blanket book that I read when you know I might be feeling a little bit down or to make me feel better but yeah it just it showcased just such a different side of the court for me where actually the women were the sort of puppeteers and the orchestrators of everything that actually went on so I think I quite like seeing a bit of a different side to that I think so okay I like that that's going down on the list definitely Nicola what about you the most valuable book you have read and why so for me, I read a book when I was 17 uh, and it was by a lady called Martha Gellhorn who was probably a lot more famous than her book. So she was a 20th century war correspondent and mum was, was a suffragist um, and she basically travelled from war-torn place to war-torn place interviewing and feeding back to the UK which one, wasn't a very safe job and two, certainly not a very female job. 
And I remember reading this book called Travels with Myself and Another. And this is actually more about her travels as opposed to uh, about her journalism. And she travels to the Northern Caribbean, she travels to China, Russia, Africa. And she has some views that in the context at the time are okay. Now you question some of them. Mm. But it made me feel like I could do anything I wanted any time and gender wasn't a thing. And my friends and I set up a book club um, 10 years ago to make us read. Now we have kids and no time and big jobs. And um, we read lots of different books. And we read this again two months ago. And it absolutely reignited the same feeling of, do you know what? You could do anything. You could be in a weird environment. It can be really unfamiliar. It can be run by structures that aren't what you expect and don't like. And you can still rock it. Give us the title again. Travels with Myself and Another. By Martha Gellhorn. Thank you so much. Who's ordering that? Yeah, everyone in the audience, pretty much. Anyone else got a book? And it could be, I don't care if it's Harry Potter or Mr. Man or whatever, but something you found valuable, yes. Uh, Hi, um, a book called Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Um, It's a business psychology book, but not too much. Um, It's basically quite prevalent for women in the fact that it talks about how just because you're organised and you can fit six million things into one day because you're wonderful and you can do it doesn't mean you have to do. So it talks about the value you get from what's important to you in your job and what's important to you in your life and your family and and everything else. Um, So really kind of stops that guilt when you feel like you can't achieve everything you want to achieve. Just kind of puts your ducks in a row, if that makes sense. and with having family, work, you know, other things going on, it's been a bit of a game changer. I hate to be that person that says a book changed my life, but it has actually changed my life. <laughs> Tell us the name again. Um, Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Love that. Yes, another one. Um, I'm a bit obsessed with self-help books, so I have a big library of them. But um, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Uh, it's very much around mindfulness and being present in the moment and how that's where the power is. And um, that's probably my favourite. And I keep referring back to it. And he is a name who's mentioned by so many other authors when they, they write their own books, actually. They kind of, he's kind of the author's author, in a way, isn't he? Anyone else got any suggestions? A book they found really, really valuable? Everyone's being shy. Everyone's thinking, I really loved Bridget Jones' diary, but I don't <laughs> want to say. It's all right. Simone, what's yours? Uh, Aesop's Fables. Aesop's Fables? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Which one? Particularly? Well, I know the whole book. I'm going to lunge to you. Now we're talking about libraries. Yeah. So my gag saw my grandfather in Scouse World, you know, he would take me to the library after school on a Friday afternoon, and that was the first book where it got out, and I must have got it out about five, oh, ten times afterwards. So I think emotionally it is yeah. that book, and I think at the time when you're reading it at whatever primary school age, you don't necessarily think about the kind of bigger stories that it tells. But I remember revisiting it, probably about five or six years ago thinking gosh am I going to be disappointed yeah. and it wasn't it's still oh, it's yes. still but you see it in a di- you read it in a different way um but yeah definitely that was mine Aesop's Fables thank you Simone and one final one yes uh, I am a, another sci-fi and fantasy reader but I uh, I read a book by a lady called N.K. Jemison, Nora Jemison. She's won the Hugo for every book in the trilogy. And having read a lot of fantasy and sci-fi, I didn't realise how much I needed a book written by a black woman fighting in that field until I read it and just went, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. The book again? Um, that the, the series is called The Broken Earth Trilogy. Um, the first book is called The Fifth Gate, N.K. Jemison. Thank you. Well, we're sorted for our entire summer holidays now. Brilliant. We, let's just start. We talked about the Northern Power Women Book Club before. Let's start it right now. Definitely. It's already happened. <laughs> right. OK, our final question already. Goodness me, this afternoon. Now, last month saw, of course, the fabulous fourth Northern Power Women Awards. More than 800 people joined us to champion amazing men and women. Now, also last month, you might have seen an episode of the BBC comedy Fleabag. What a great programme. What a great programme. But it featured a Women in Business Awards. And the commentary, Women's Awards... It's infantilizing. It's ghettoizing. It's a subsection of success. It's the children's table of awards. Now, this started a discussion where I worked, but I'd like to know what you think of women's and indeed, I suppose, any other subsection of society awards infantilizing, ghettoizing, or empowering. Yasmin? Um, I think it's fantastic that we can have awards that champions, you know, all people's achievements, women's, men's, whatever. And I think 
diversity and inclusion is, is such a huge and vast forum as it is that people there are going to be subsections of people that want to celebrate in their own ways and who are we to say that they, they shouldn't do that and I think thanks to Simone you know we're we're able to celebrate in the north you know how great women and men are in the north and I, I don't see that there's anything wrong with that but I do think it's quite easy for people to turn around and say you know to go the other way and say actually you know this is excluding certain people from this or it's excluding men or it's excluding mm. mixed race women or wh whatever it is at the time so I think you can see it from both perspectives but I just think it's actually nice that we live in we're, we're trying to push such an inclusive society and make ourselves in into that kind of society that considers everybody's achievements you know no matter what I guess race religion gender so I think why not I don't think it's ghettoized and I don't think it's you know I, I, I don't think it's there's anything wrong with us having subsections I think people should be pretty much entitled to do what they want when they want really Nicola, what about you? I did talk to, to one woman at work about this. Who said, oh, I don't like women's organisations because it makes us look weak. It makes us need, feel like we need support, that we, aren't, we can't sit at the big table with the big boys. Um, I'm loving the look on your face. I wish I could describe it. The sort of a quiet but furious uh, thoughts going through your head. Please, please make your face into words. <laughs> well, you're right. I'm quite torn on this one. On the one hand, I think there needs to be a platform for minority groups to celebrate and recognise the success and achievement and to be seen as best in class. Because I think in the more holistic awards that I go to, it's not like that. It's white man after white man after white man winning yet another award. And if you look at the tweets behind them, that's what they say. Uh, there are still more men called John heading up on boards in FTSE companies than, than there are women, full stop. There are more called Steve than there are BAME as well, which is just incredible, really. But on the other hand, I think if you take women as example, if you have uh, women picking awards for women, presenting them to women in front of women, that's great, but you're not going to change the culture where that's not necessary. So I'm really torn. I think on balance right now, I think it's a really good thing because... I think to win that sort of award gives you that push for your confidence that might have been knocked over the years to make you just step forward and go, do you know what, I can do this. And that support that women can give each other or the different minority groups is huge. So for the minute, yes, but I just wish it wasn't necessary. Yeah, well, quite. And I know that we always, you know, have men as part of the conversation here at Northern Power Women. And in fact, you know, Simone, we've talked before about the fact you, you had some criticism when men have won Northern Power Women Awards, which seems quite counterintuitive in a way. But, you know, Ed, your, your company, 50-50, owned by a man and a woman. What do, you mm -hmm. think of, what do you think of this conversation? I think anyone that would suggest that any sort of celebration of success is a bad thing, uh, you need to look at the person commenting on that, I think. I think it's probably one of those old school people want to pop the clogs at some point soon um, for me uh, in the back way, to the death again absolutely very, <laughs> very dark turns the books I read for me I, th I think it's, it's it's a bit petty to say you know, anything other than well actually we've found something really good to celebrate let's go and celebrate it yeah. you know that's the whole point of it it's not necessarily going to be the thing seeing that award isn't going to go out and necessarily change culture it's mm. rewarding people who have attempted to change that culture you know I give out tech awards if I give our tech awards in my small organisation, does that mean I'm excluding everyone else? Well, yes, it is, because I want to like, actually celebrate these people here. You know, in the same way as if it's north or south, it's just a smaller version of celebrating a really good thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I find the sort of general commentary around it quite amusing, because it feels like I've got a gruff old man sort of sat there, oh, no, you can't do that sort of thing. Yeah. What, whatever next. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I, th I think that you know, if we can't celebrate success in that sort of form, how are we going to do it? Mm -hmm. Are we don't need to have just general one world level award yeah. for general goodness of people. <laughs> You've got to narrow it down at some point and that seems like an appropriate place to do it. Anyone else in the audience got anything to say on this one? Yes, I'm coming back round for another lunch. Yes. Um, it's probably more a comment than a question, um, which probably goes back to what Yasmin was saying about inclusivity. I'm really lucky, I work in a law firm, 72% um, female which is quite unheard of. Um, it's all mainly down to the leadership of the firm mm -hmm. believe in flexibility and not just for women who 
you would normally assume are the ones who need to be at home looking after children. And law is obviously a, a, an industry which is not well known for its flexibility. Um, and it's the fact that because it's so open to the men and the women within the firm, um, it makes people tick, it makes people work when they can work, when they want to work. Everyone has deadlines, but it works really well, but it's the fact that it's open to everyone, it's inclusive, it's not just mm. flexibility for the women, it's, it's for the men as well, and it works brilliantly. Exactly. Very, very good comment indeed. Yes, I'm going to lunge back to, to Ed. Just on that point about law firms particularly, uh, I saw a tweet from my friend, my oldest friend in the world, Amy Wright, this morning, who works at a law firm in Leeds, commenting on she's going to a senior meeting in corporate law and there's about 12 people there and she was the only female in the room and in terms of you know we work with lawyers with accountants with investors and that you know in terms of tech yes we've got a problem but in other areas I think there's actually some bigger problems it's just that we're willing to shine the light on it Really interesting stuff. Well, again, as ever, please keep the conversation going. Keep it flowing. You can find us on Twitter at North Power Women. We're on Instagram, Facebook. You can even send us an email. Does How fashion does that sound now? I know. Or phone us up. Oh, I don't know if we want to do that. Uh, but you can, of course, find us podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Thank you to Ed Thewlis, to Yasmin Akhtar, and to Nicola Hall with Rudd as well. Thank you, lovely audience, for being here. Thank you. <laughs> Big thank you again to everyone who came along, took part, and of course, thank you to our fabulous panel as well. Do keep your eyes open for the location of our next live recording. We will post the details on Twitter at North Power Women. Now, the big interview this month comes from Anne Lim, born in Manchester and was the first girl in her family to go to university. And she went on to become a top educator and then the first ever woman chair of the Scouting Association. I asked Anne what being Northern meant to her. Oh, being a Northerner has fundamentally made me who I am, I think. Being born actually at Stretford Memorial Hospital, as my sister will remind me, and then going to Moss Side to live um, and being brought up in inner city Manchester in the 50s is such a seminal experience and one which has shaped everything I've done, really. I mean, you've got to imagine the first Windrush uh, generation, my dad, um, my family being white, but him being a butcher, us living above the butcher's shop in Great Western Street, and me playing out in the alleyway behind the butcher's shop, playing out with a little black boy who I didn't think of as black, who I never thought of as anything other than my friend. at a time when um, the country was clearly changing and why and forward 60 years has fundamentally changed mm. and attitudes towards immigration and all the rest of it. So just for starters, that whole experience of a, of a very interesting, but for me perfectly normal uh, inner city life in Manchester has made equality, equality of race, equality of everything, uh, a, a key part of who I am and has shaped everything I've done and all the decisions I've taken. You stayed in the north to go to university, of course, to Liverpool. I did. But the first person in your family to go to university, what inspired you to want to do that then? Um, Well, it certainly wasn't my grandparents. Um, I mean, my grandfather actually uh, played for Manchester City, uh, which is why we're lifelong city supporters. But um, after I'd done A-levels, he said, well, isn't our Anne going to get a job then? Because, of course, that's what you normally did. Um, I mean, he meant that in the kindest possible way. I think because I uh, had parents who were not really socially uh, or intellectually ambitious, I don't think, but who had been able to give me the kind of education that they hadn't had because... Actually, 1960s in Cheshire, actually. Mm. I went to school in in Marple, as it happens, but to a girls' grammar school, now Marple Hall School, but it was Marple Hall Girls' Grammar School then in the 60s. You were exposed to the opportunity to go to university. So the fact that, yes, I was the first... Uh, in my family, I wasn't the first amongst that generation who 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 went to university from a, a school that was, I suppose, giving ambition to young younger girls that mm. that perhaps yeah. is more commonplace these days, uh, but was less so in in the sixties. We had a a, a a good sprinkling of young women teachers who were inspirational, I think, and who were encouraging. So the combination of them plus my parents' willingness 
and dare I say it, uh, quite politically provocative to say this, but it's absolutely true, uh, the availability of, um, a, of a student grant. You know, I would not have been able to go had I not had some money from uh, the uh, the taxpayer, from the state. Uh, it would have been more difficult. Then all of that just meant that I had the chance to go somewhere. And I did French uh, from 1971 to 75 at Liverpool University, so only really went down the the you know, the, other, the other the other side of Manchester in a way. It, it seemed like it's not very far away, really, but it seemed quite far away there. And then, and actually, Liverpool was a very different place. As very was Manchester. different identity, yeah, very different identity. But they are the north, and they are the northwest. So then you move into education mm. as a working class northern lass mm. in education. Were there any times that that you felt your voice? wasn't heard because you're also a leader at a very you were in a leadership role at a very very young age that's a really excellent question not consciously mm. is the answer to that and i think that that's interesting though as i reflect on it to think about what i was actually doing in the first 10 years of my career because i was a french teacher so, so i actually think i found my voice in another language funnily enough um and being a teacher and teaching uh actually mostly then it was o level and a levels mm. around the manchester area in fact uh, if i hear in sale where we're sitting adult education center and then fe colleges that are now manchester uh the manchester college uh did a stint at what was with Shaw. anyway um I think all of that was a way of of that voice being heard, but I didn't think of it as being leadership. I thought of it as helping people transform their lives by learning a language. And I loved speaking and I loved communication and I loved being able to um, impart that, uh, actually, love of France and love of the language to others. I didn't consciously think, oh, well, within 10 years, I will go from part-time teacher to being a principal of an FE college. But actually, that is what happened. Yeah. Um, and then I found myself at the age of 34 as, as as a principal of a further education college in Milton Keynes, which is, in fact, why I then moved to Milton Keynes uh, and, indeed, left the North completely. Um, and unlike, uh, again, as it is the case today, I think, for many people, you have a coach, you have a mentor, um, uh, you have uh, a buddy or a friend who may say, yes, you can do that. Or from quite an early age, you think to yourself, oh, I'd like to be X and Y when I grow up. The limit of my aspirations were, well, I'd love to be a French teacher. And my mum and dad saying, that's a great job because you'll have a pension. I, I never, ever thought, well, I will lead an institution, let alone become a principal of two colleges, mm. then a civil servant, and then a whole host of other things I've done. So... That I don't like to say that my career happened um, accidentally because I don't think it was that. But I think a, a real difference is I didn't consciously plan it in a way that uh, now many uh, women, and it's a good thing, are encouraged to do. And I encourage women to do that now. So in a way, you were almost successful in spite of yourself. You Obviously, you had opportunities and you absolutely grasped them. But it would have been advantageous, you think, to have had that plan. I think so, and I think it goes back to your first question about something to do with the the northern roots and the kind of experiences I had. I think by nature I am somebody who uh, is curious about the new, um, is somebody who uh, explores and seeks and um, isn't too afraid to try the novel um, and risk failure. But I think the fact that um, I took those opportunities when they came along and found I could do them, uh, it turned out serendipitously that that was okay. I genuinely think sometimes I probably could have done with a bit of a helping hand and, and some guidance. Uh, and I'm not saying I didn't have friends. I've had, I've had loads of good friends and other support. Yeah. But I do think what's so much more accepted now for men and for women, but certainly for women, is that that you can um, think through your work-life balance, you can think through your ambitions, you can think through your failures uh, and share your successes with others. Mm. And that, 
feels so much more liberating to me. And culturally, it was different in the 60s and 70s. Um, and um, actually, as it happened, I'm a gay woman as well. Well, my God, you've got to even imagine that. I mean, I could own up to being a feminist, but um, actually even... E- even the thought of admitting to um, having relationships with both men and women, which in fact I have done in my life, mm. although I've been with my partner, woman partner now for 33 years, it, it just wasn't possible. Mm. So I think all of those things made me much more reticent. Did you ever have imposter syndrome? When you found yourself as this senior leader in your early 30s, we hear about imposter syndrome so much amongst incredibly successful women. Did you ever suffer from that? If my sister hears this podcast, and she probably won't because my younger sister will be saying, oh, my God, she's at it again. She'd say, if you answered yes to that, Anne, you would be, you know, a complete and utter uh, charlatan. You know, you'd be lying through your teeth. Um, Because I think her perception would be I would never have felt that I didn't deserve to be there. The reality is I wouldn't have called it that because I didn't know that that was what we call that thing. Um, Did I, however, experience um, uh, the feeling that um, I couldn't do or I wasn't good enough to be able to do the job that I found myself in? Well, yes, I would have had, Mm -hmm. I did have some of those internal doubts. Um, But I think the very nature of this uh, what I've talked about really combination of my own personality plus uh, perhaps some of the kind of quite tough uh, situations I had to encounter as a child in a way with a grit to being able to develop what these days you'd call a bit of resilience mm. uh, 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 to develop the coping me- mechanisms and strategies to just get on and get and get and get through and not be too public about it you know uh, uh, so I'm confessing yes to those inner doubts but I, I wouldn't have made them them known mm. and then once you get some success you think well that that's okay it's 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 um uh, it, it's kind of it feels right to be here but it's really only since my sort of early 50s that I think I've actually really felt yeah you know i'm in yeah. I, I, yeah i'm i i have a right to be here you know whatever i'm doing it's interesting isn't it mm. the number of women i talk to and you think surely she would never doubt herself ever at any point we all we all do mm. it we, and you know there've been whole podcast discussions about this actually and why this does tend to be an inherently female thing we could go on all day mm. um you really advocated Anne, for women throughout your career actually and more specifically I suppose in the latter part of your career when you, you've specifically worked with, with advocating women what have you noticed about how attitudes towards women in senior roles have changed since you first started? Have they? Um, uh, yes I think they have because society's attitudes towards diversity and certainly an understanding of uh, equality um, legally um, yeah. and inclusivity generally has changed and you know that affects everything that we do so culturally and socially there's a very different environment um, that doesn't mean to say that if you are in any way a little bit kind of different or unique um, in, in a role that people won't still look at you because I think it does still apply but that said I, th- I think one of the reasons why it's different now is is because of that. However, I think when a woman who's not been in a role first goes into that role, mm. people are always curious about it. So you could think of endless examples, certainly being the first woman chair of the Scout Association, uh, which obviously is a role I occupy, although scouting has involved boys and girls uh, for the last 27, 28 years now. It is a mixed youth organisation. It's still a curious um, phenomenon for some people and certainly for for some men because obviously here we're talking about a, a gender uh, divide so I think you're right I've always uh, am a feminist as I've said and I've always advocated and tried to support and bring through women and also to align myself with men who support women and develop women that has been so it is so important and mm-hmm. that's been important to me um uh, uh, but I think there's a curiosity always ab- about the f- the number of women 
even take the number of women in Parliament, it's still only 209 mm. from 650 or something. So it's not even a third. Uh, and yet there are many, many more, many more northern voices and northern women voices and, and the rest, and uh, 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 racially and sexually and in every conceivable way that diversity is reflected. But the numbers are still uh, not anything like the half and half. Be, yeah. mm. You mentioned your your uh, you being chair, of course, of the Scout Association. September 2015, yes. you took that role up. As you said, some people, what would the word be, reflective about perhaps uh, the choice of a woman uh, taking on that role. Why were you, though, Anne? Why were you so passionate about it? Mm. Why did you want to do it? Well, although I say the North and certainly uh, the grammar school education and university, as we've spoken about, shaped me, Alongside that, actually uh, going into brownies and guides because you couldn't become a scout um, in the in the, uh, the the sixties if you were a girl because that's the way it was. They were boy scouts, um, but the experience of doing what um, is to do with informal learning, to be amongst others and learn uh, uh, teamwork, to learn to be a volunteer, to learn to do things. Uh, in a much more relaxed way, whether that's outdoors, which I did love as well, but also um, the kind of learning that you get that's not at school, the kind of experience that you get that's not at school. You can allow your personality to come through, and that did, for me, hugely. I was a a chubby, um, if not overweight, uh, perhaps not by these uh, standards these days, but but then um, I was an awkward, chubby little girl uh, who actually wasn't unintelligent, but didn't possess the kind of um, conventional bright intelligence that um, certainly at primary school immediately got you noticed. I was a bit airy fairy. I was a bit away with the fairies uh, sometimes, uh, head in the clouds type stuff, and and not good at some of those primary school things. In in brownies and then guides, those talents and those that that type of uh, way of approaching things were much more valued. So you could be a bit odd, you could be a bit different, you could be a bit quirky, you could be overweight, and people wouldn't make fun of you quite so much. So you didn't have to be so conventional, and that profoundly affected me and and I I just felt valued and affirmed. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't at at school ultimately either, but I'm just saying that was a very affirming experience. And I see that today with the um, diverse and inclusive approach we have in scouting and indeed the Girl Guides have as as well with with young women. Um, It it gives confidence and it helps young people develop skills for life. Looking to... A young girl today, a young woman mm. today, if perhaps she was looking to join the Scouts. I suppose what advice could you give her about the challenges she is going to face in her life? Mm. Um, I meet an awful lot of young women through Scouting and I learn so much from them. Um, and the world is really quite a frightening place, actually. I'm uh, saying this uh, three or four days after one of those Girl Scouts, Jodie Chesney, was knifed and killed uh, and um, (laughs) had only last November uh, both been to Downing Street and appeared in the Remembrance Day uh, service which Scouts featured so significantly. Uh, And I have her very much in mind because she is uh, a terrible waste of life and she is very typical of the marvellous young people that we have. I think what she did, in as much as I I can say, and what I would say to others, is um, she lived her life by her own lights. And I would say to any young person, uh, be who you are, value who you are. It might take you some time to find out exactly who you are, because we all have ups and downs. Uh, We all have to live with doubt and uncertainty and fear. But actually, we're all capable of great love and generosity and curiosity and creativity. And actually, finding that balance within yourself and asking 
others to help you do that and also working that out with other people with your friends with your families with your with, with your siblings um, uh, through people at school etc through people in scouting that's what the journey into growth and learning and developing is is about um, I don't think anybody ever put it like that to me as a child and perhaps I wouldn't put it like that to a young person but that's kind of what I'd mean uh, what I certainly had, and I think of them as, as we, we just conclude this, is, you know, I had teachers who just exemplified that. I had um, a, 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 a guide captain and a brown owl who did that, who put in to practice their own values in the way that they tried to live out their life. And essentially, that's what you need to do. And always remember that you know you're only really as as strong as the weakest link in your your chain and actually if you ever leave anybody behind the the chain breaks so i would always say look to the weakest and uh, and pull them up and and it, and if you do that you yourself will be the stronger for it thank you to the brilliant and really inspiring Anne lim Whose life and career would you love to know more about? Do let us know. All you need to do is email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Okay, it's time now for Ask the Hive, a place where you can ask about any problems you're facing at work or concerns you have about your career. And the Northern Power Women Hive Mind lends you its wisdom. This month, if you spent your whole career doing one thing, but you want to explore something else, how do you go about it? So in the past I've been really successful at building localised food businesses, establishing them and selling them on. So what I've got now is a broad range of skills that I'd like to take forward into a new kind of career. What I'm struggling with is applying those potentially into a bigger, broader role and I'd ask for people who've maybe had similar experiences what advice would they give me. The best thing to do is think about the transferable skills that you've got from your past experience and how to dress those up for the jobs that you'd like to apply for and maybe tailor your CV uh, so that it fits the one you're particularly going for. You will find you'll be happily surprised that many of your skills will be absolutely appropriate for what you want to apply for. So I read recently that when men are applying for jobs, they take a look at the criteria and if they hit 50% of them, they will apply for it. Whereas when women look for jobs, they see the criteria and they won't, they won't apply until they hit 90% of them. And frankly, I think that's outrageous. What we need to do is we need to start applying for jobs like we're men. Just pretend you've got a penis and just if you hit 50% of those, apply for it. And you never know what's going to happen because, you know, we have all of these soft skills which aren't... Um, treated as valuable by by job adverts but actually when we get into work they are treated as valuable because they are you know women are really good at putting people together at connecting and that's really valuable for a business I would write down everything you've done in your business from setting it up to running it and then take the word food out of it and all of that will be transferable to the new job and CV you're looking to do and just think of all the things you've done within that business, how you've dealt with people, how you've dealt with really, really boring paperwork, all that you can completely do in any job in any industry. So I suppose with any job there's a whole range of people skills which um, you probably subconsciously pick up on as you go through your career. Those are definitely transferable. The ability to talk to people, negotiate, um, compromise, just get on with people is something that um, you're not necessarily taught but is probably one of the most important career skills you can have. I think because you've already been there and done it with those food businesses, you've already got a blueprint for success. Um, so you can advise, you know, startups and growing food businesses already. You could al almost position yourself as an expert in that field. I think any startup, any consumer startup, would be looking for specialist advice. And people that have actually been there and done it is going to be really popular. So I'd think about really positioning yourself in the media, writing articles on LinkedIn, speaking to local press, and making sure you're out out there. Um, and I think that could turn into something bigger and broader depending on the contacts that you make from that as well. What you're feeling is really common I think nowadays because lots of people change their role or change their careers later on in life 
and struggle to think about the skills they've got in, in any particular job that they could use in another, whatever he's talking about, transferable skills. Take a look at your CV and look at what you've done, but take the word food or take any reference to the food businesses out of it and think about finance, think about personnel and HR skills and managing people, think about product development or product management or, or buying and think about all those generic business skills that there are that are needed, that are really valued and then think about how what you've done already has proven that you've got those skills. Thank you. If you took time to offer your advice this month, really, really appreciated. So next time, how to get out of bonding with your colleagues. I really hate company away days where you have to do things like paintball and team building. I like my job and I like my colleagues, but this stuff I just can't stand. There's one in May and I just don't want to do it at all. What can I do? It's on a Saturday. Do you know what? My blood also runs cold at the thought of a company escape room. But what would your advice be? Is it something she should even attempt to get out of? Or actually, is doing something out of your comfort zone what is part of working life? Get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can either record a voice memo on your phone and email it to podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or open up WhatsApp, add the Northern Power Women podcast on 07928 387 that's 07928 387 712 and you can send us your thoughts that way all you need to do is hold the little microphone button next to the messaging box uh, say what you want to say take your finger off and the message will come straight to us more on those instructions online at northernpowerwomen.com well there we go for another month of great stories great advice and brilliant ideas big big thank you to listening please do leave us your feedback and your reviews wherever you get your podcasts from and tell anyone you think who might enjoy what we do save the date the next episode arrives for you on friday the 3rd of may and until then this is the northern power women podcast i'm sam walker and this has been a what goes on media production for northern power women 